Welcome back to Voices from Healthcare. Every other week, I seek to paint healthcare in vivid color as I learn more about the human side of medicine. In this episode of Voices from Healthcare. I think for me, I I think it's so important to, to really seek out that real genuine connection. Um, you know, emergency medicine is very fast-paced, and I don't always get a long time to get a connection with families. Um, but when I do, um, those moments are, I mentioned the word holy, they're, they're a sacred space that you hold with um, your patient and their family that very few people in the world are um, bear witness to. And so, you know, having those moments and, and holding them in high regard and connecting in those moments, uh, I think that is some of the most impactful uh, moments in my life. Uh, I think it would be easy to, you know, gloss over those moments. I think it would be easy to, to keep on um, going to the next patient. I think it would be easy to leave the shift and try to forget all about it. Um, but for me, I think that the thing that brings me joy is to really, you know, dig into those hard moments and, and sit with those family and families and to be present and to genuinely care and, and hope that, you know, if I can do that, they can feel that and they can feel supported and that even though what they're doing is difficult, they they might know that there is something that's bigger than what's going on in their life. Welcome back to another episode. Today we explore the unique world of pediatric emergency medicine. We explore the situations that bring people to the ER, ethical dilemmas, and vital decisions that may impact a patient's life. We look into the fast-paced nature of the ER, as well as the value of effective collaboration within the department. We will touch on the valuable experience of a doctor turned patient and tools to combat compassion fatigue. Dr. Scheller is a pediatric emergency medicine doctor with special interests in medical code teams, resuscitation, patient safety, and quality improvement. Dr. Scheller completed her MD from the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Medicine. She would complete her fellowship within pediatric emergency medicine at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. She currently works as the Emergency Ambulatory Response System Code Team Director, the Chair of the ED Resuscitation Committee, and the Chair of the ED Patient Safety Quality Improvement Conference at her Children's Mercy Hospital as well as a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Medicine. Dr. Scheller balances compassion and competency well and constantly seeks to inspire the next generation of healthcare professionals. It is such a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Scheller. Thanks for having me. I want to look at the beginnings and start out with those early stages. So when we initially think of the ER department, we might think of a trauma patient who is losing vast amounts of blood and needs a transfusion, or a child who has fractured the wrist and is being rushed into surgery. 
Yet, not all aspects of the ER deal with these trauma cases or these life or death situations. Could you just give us an overview of your distinctive role within the medical field and specifically within emergency medicine? Sure. Um, so a lot of times people think about emergency medicine as the front door to the hospital. I consider it more of the pulse on the community. It's the service that serves any and all that walks through the door. That could be anything from ranging for a broken bone or a parent that's concerned about the way their child's breathing or a child that's very, very sick and needs a lot of support. The pediatric ER is the pediatric version of that and it's typically in a children's hospital though that has been a role that's expanding to other locations. I think the other part of the emergency medicine role is that it helps understand the system of a medicine well, which is often difficult for a patient to, to navigate through as it is not always easy to get evaluation that is needed to be done in a, a fast and efficient way. And I want to touch on your educational journey a little bit. So typically aspiring healthcare students, they enter college with a specific healthcare concentration and then they attend college for typically four years before applying to graduate school. But could you explain your unique educational journey and how you ended up taking only six years to acquire your MD following high school? Sure, so it was actually a combined um undergrad and medical school program. So there okay. are a couple in the, the country. Um, the way our program worked at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, um, was that there were conceptually two years of undergrad and four years of medical school. That being said, um, the undergrad years were intertwined with the medical school. So there were certain things that were um, classes that you took early on, um, even when you were just straight out of high school. Um, but they weren't largely clinical. The clinical work started more in that third year. Um, uh, the undergrad portion could be concentrated in an area of interest, um, though for a lot of students, it might be a basic degree like a Bachelor of Liberal Arts with the focus on medicine being throughout the, the training. It was definitely not um, a, uh, a path that is well um, taken for all students. Um, so I think it, it worked well for me in a sense that um, it allowed me to have extra, I guess not necessarily extra time, it allowed me to pursue other um, aspects of my career after medical school. So um, like in taking a fellowship. Okay. And could you just describe the educational choice and how that impacts your practice. Did you ever feel rushed through that process or did you feel like like you were saying that was the right decision for you personally? Yeah, I mean, I think it was um it was definitely a big decision to make at, you know, 18 coming right out of high school. And so, I think um I don't know if I completely understood uh the path that I was on and the gravity and the length of the path I would be on when I first started. Uh, I think that I evolved over that journey, and it, it ended up being uh, a path that was well-suited for me um, as it, it allowed me to be done with training um, sooner 
in pursuing a fellowship as well. Uh, because I think that sometimes medical training, though there is so much to learn, um, it, it becomes a, a large burden uh, on the student as financially as well as length of time. Um, so I think it worked out well for me, but I don't know if it's the best choice for every person. <laughs> for sure. And did you always have a love for medicine or did that develop over time within your life? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So my father is a physician, so I had always had the exposure to medicine. He's a radiologist. It's a little different than the medicine I practice, but um, I had the exposure. We were always, you know, encouraged to, you know, take academics seriously, but we were never really pushed into medicine by any means. And I don't think I ever remember my father telling any of us to become doctors. Um, but I think that probably related to genetics, <laughs> we were really good. I mean, we excelled in math and sciences. Um, and for me, I, th I think when I had taken some of those classes in high school, especially anatomy, it I just had a passion to want to learn more about how the body is made and how it functions and being able to aid the body in um, towards health and really ultimately aid people towards health. Hmm. Now, did you touched on it a little bit before, but um, w with your father being a physician, did that influence your decision to enter the medical field? Did you feel inspired by his work and what he had done? And was it because of that or was there a lot of external factors as well that kind of played into that end decision? Yes, I think, um, I don't really, I, I'm not sure if I completely think that him being a physician is what made me pursue medicine. Definitely, uh, I felt like my father's role in my life uh, as being a leader in his community, uh, support to his family, um, always striving for more knowledge and um, that thirst for that knowledge was something that I um, gained from him. I think medicine uh, really started to fall into place for me when I started learning about it and really having that joy of the education in myself. That's great too that you didn't feel that pressure to pursue medicine but that it was ultimately your own choice to enter into that field. During your time um, in high school, you said that you had a very formative experience uh, in anatomy and that you wanted to learn uh, more about the human body and that kind of started that journey for you. Were there any other key mentors or formative moments throughout your education that ultimately confirmed your direction for medicine? I, I think the, the confirmation probably came during the process for me because it really <laughs> was right out of high school. Um, you know, for an accelerated program, it it definitely, you know, in general, takes a lot of the student to pursue a field like medicine. Um, but I think for me, I really started connecting with patients in ways I didn't anticipate. Um, when I started clinically working with patients, I felt an intense compassion for them. I, I felt moved to tears seeing a patient that had a blood infection or sepsis and um, seeing them in pain. 
I, I didn't anticipate having that um, reaction the way I did. Um, and it, I think it's still what moves me to, to going to work every day because I, I truly want to help that, those, that, that patient and that family um, and care about them as, as people. That's really valuable. It's not just the patient, but it's the story that they bring too, and that they're these people with these stories, and it's amazing to have that human perspective inside the medicine as well. There's incredible diversity within the field of emergency medicine. There are emergency medical technicians, emergency physicians, there's MRI, ultrasound or vascular techs, certified nursing assistants, and more. Could you just touch on this diversity within emergency medicine and a little bit of how you found your unique love within the field? Yeah, you definitely um, have a little bit of perspective for the emergency department, um, but it is, it, we kind of touched on it before, but it it's can, can be a little bit of an overwhelming place. Mm -hmm. There is just a lot of people, a lot going on all at once, um, very disorienting, um, but I think once you, there can be those established relationships. You start seeing how things are actually moving together in collaboration. Um, definitely when you're talking about how ever-changing and adaptability of the emergency department is, um, that's really when the department is at its best, when there is a what we call a mass trauma. There's multiple car accidents and there's multiple kids coming from that location. Um, how that the people in the department um, excel in those moments is really what I think probably brings a lot of people to emergency medicine because it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, the shared goal of all jumping in and doing as much as they possibly can to the shared goal of helping those patients out um, in their time of need. That's really powerful. Now, you're a pediatric emergency medicine doctor. Were you always drawn to pediatrics, or how did that decision end up happening? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's um, it, I probably in life as well. Yes, in life as well, but pediatrics, um, I think in medicine you are exposed to a lot of different fields, um, a lot of different things, and uh, you just kind of start gravitating. And part of the gravitation is what you um, are being pulled towards, but also pulled away from. So I think a lot of things you start seeing, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm fit for this role or this role. And um, for pediatrics, I, I really always enjoy the resiliency of children. Um, even when they don't feel well, they want to play, uh, which is really a, an incredible sign of what they are able to do. Some of the things that children can do um, through an intense amount of pressure and illness, um, I've seen kids recover from incredible injuries. Uh, and the joy they can have through it is it is humbling, to say the least. So I, I think I, I have always loved pediatrics, and now as a mother and seeing what a miracle it is to have a child and how, um, how grateful a parent can be for their child has really given me so much compassion to those parents as well um, and the journey that they are on in caring for their child. 
It's a beautiful vision, and you're right, children are so resilient, and they can give you so much life. And even when there are things that are wrong that are happening to them, uh, they're still very willing to, to keep their joy in a way, and that gives you so much life, too, as a, as a provider, I'm sure. I want to take a look into the day-to-day -day aspect. I know that the EER is fast-paced and ever-changing, but could you walk us through a typical day in your life? Uh, what are the daily requirements that you kind of focus on in a day-to-day -day setting? Yeah, um, so, you know, uh, the typical term you'll hear is like it's shift work, right? So we do these shifts in the ER and those can vary throughout the, the week and the month. And so every day can be a new day. Um, I typically will work, you know, three to five shifts in a week. Um, and in the shift period, it's very much showing up to work, um, taking on the patients that the other shift person has left and then um, seeing whoever walks in the door. And uh, I think that's um, one of the most interesting things about emergency medicine is you really have no idea what you're about to see and you, um, there's no way to really prepare for it. Um, so I think that is, you know, largely what my clinical work is. And then, you know, like a lot of medical jobs, there's administrative sides, committee work, and um, so I, I enjoy those things as well. So that's kind of the rest of my week. That's and helpful. teaching, teaching medical students, residents, and fellows is also a passion of mine. Now, for doctors, typically there's the idea of being on call, so you're not in a designated shift, but you're on call, that if need be, you could come into the hospital. Could you talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah, so um, on call for an emergency medicine physician uh, is a little different. There are um, things called like a jeopardy system, which basically those are the kind of systems in place that if someone were to be sick, then there would be a first call person to be able to fill in their shift. But when I'm on call, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be getting calls from people asking questions or whatnot. Okay. Um, so that's where it differs a little bit from other on-call systems where you might actually be more likely to be called for questions or even coming in. Um, but our Jeopardy system is a call in a sense that um, I could be asked to come in to work if someone's sick. But, um, you know, it doesn't happen that, that often. <laughs> Maybe this flu season will be a little different. I don't know. But... Uh, so if a patient is, you know, they're recovering or, you know, maybe they're, they still have some consciousness when they come into the ER, uh, but they obviously have a very uh, critical condition, something that needs to be solved. Could you just talk about the importance of an effective physician-patient relationship and like as much as possible trying to, to form a relationship with that patient and how effective that really can be? Yeah, so, you know, um, that this is where pediatrics is especially unique because um, I have a patient, but I also have a caregiver um, mm -hmm. that I am not only trying to take care of that patient, but taking care of that caregiver is really important, too, because they will take care of that child after I am done helping them. Um, so it's it's like, in a way, I have two patients. Um, so, you know, in approaching a child, it's trying to establish um, the rapport is more trying to create or ease their fears. Um, a lot of times that can be done with play, um, you know, pointing out things on their shirt or their shoes and being like, oh, that's fun, or like playing a, with a ball with them or something, joking around, 
silly jokes, um, nerdy ones that the teenagers will laugh at you for. Uh, those are all always a good place to, to kind of start with them. Um, and then, you know, for the parent, it's really kind of a, a sit down conversation. Uh, you know, what, what are your concerns? How do I help you take care of your child? Because um, it really is an honor to be able to, to serve someone um, in a way of taking care of one of the most valuable things in their life or mm -hmm. people in their lives. Um, most valuable aspect of their life can be their children. So um, addressing those concerns and, and giving the education to not only the family member but the patient in a way that they can understand it and really learn uh, about their body in a, a way that I passionately learned about my own body with going through training. Um, so it can be an exciting way of teaching as well as um, treating. That's beautiful. If a patient arrives to the ER but they have many conditions or pressing issues occurring simultaneously, how do you prioritize which condition is treated first? I've always been curious about that oh, within yeah. the ER setting. <laughs> um, Thankfully, uh, there's a, a lot of smart people in medicine that have thought, done a lot of smart thinking and have come up with all sorts of great courses. So there's um, all sorts of resuscitation courses and trauma courses are out there. So um, there's ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support, and Pediatric Advanced Life Support, as well as um, Advanced Trauma Life Support. So there's all these different courses. I am certified in almost all of them. I don't think I do the, have the adult certification as much anymore, though we see a good amount of adults as well. Um, so, you know, the big thing for, for um, quickly assessing patients is it, we always say the ABCs um, of uh, care, and that can also go down to E, D, E. Um, but the most important is A, airway. If you're not able to get air into your lungs, then your lungs can't get oxygen to your heart that that can't bump pump to the rest of your body and support the rest of your body so airway then breathing then circulation is kind of the first um, couple of things that we think about with most of those um, resuscitative classes uh, but really you know a lot of things that happen um, like you kind of asked in the question occur simultaneously. Um, yeah. Thankfully, we have a big coordinating group that helps orchestrate things together. So, you know, we have respiratory therapists that'll rush to the airway to support breathing. We have, um, you know, nurses and techs are running to the bedside to start IVs. We're getting them on a monitor, seeing what their options are, seeing how they're breathing, examining them. So even though we think of it in a very linear way, um, with the support that that you have in a medical system, you can actually start addressing them all at the same time if you can. And that, that really touches on the collaboration of a team. You need everyone with their distinct roles and you can start solving these conditions even if they're happening at the same time. Who is in charge of kind of delegating um, who takes what aspect of, of patient care? If there's multiple conditions happening at the same time, who is kind of in charge of delegating those tasks, especially when minutes are really valuable and there's just not a lot of time to, to think or to process? Yeah, so there, there's a code leader. So that's okay. usually the, the provider that's taking, um, taking on the patient. And that, that person is kind of the um, conductor of the, the, you know, coordinating of the care. And really part of that is 
really trying to have that global sense of what's going on. Are we, do we have an airway concern? Are we addressing it? Are we effective in addressing that? How do I communicate to that person and get that communication back and then make sure the whole team knows what's going on, which is also very important. And then talking to the family and then talking. So it's a lot of talking, um, but uh, a, a lot of thinking too and um, just being mindful of everything that's going on at once and having that kind of um, bird's eye view of things, what's going on. You need that balance between being able to delegate tasks and then also being able to just take a step back and slow down for a moment so that you're not making mistakes as well, especially when time is really valuable. Yeah, I think we talked about that a little bit yesterday. It was that, um, you know, a lot of things in the emergency department and sometimes in life feels like they're emergencies. Um, but few things have to be, you have to do it right now. You can actually take a moment and really think is what the information I'm getting and what my thoughts are, are they making sense? Am I making the right decision in this moment? Are there biases involved? Do I need to rethink it and, and try something different? Um, so, you know, taking those couple of moments can make a big difference on how a patient's managed and, and how that communication occurs too. For sure, for sure. I want to look at your, your leadership and your leadership roles a little bit. We've mentioned it um, a little bit earlier in the podcast, but you work as the Emergency Ambulatory Response System Code Team Director. Uh, you're the chair of the ED Resuscitation Committee, um, as well as several other leadership roles. Could you just talk a little bit about how you were inspired to first step into some of those leadership roles? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the the code team that you mentioned, it's kind of, it's funny, actually, because that is a um, an adult and visitor code team for the hospital, and that was kind of a role that I was um, starting to be involved in the hospital resuscitation committee, and it was a, uh, I didn't say voluntold, but a, a strong encouragement to <laughs> consider taking on this role. Um, but it was a very interesting role because it really was one of, um, one of the big service we do a lot of service to the hospital and the community as a whole, um, but it, it was something that the ER, it was an ED-based team that went to different locations. So if you were visiting our hospital and you passed out and they didn't know what to do, they would call our ER team and we would bring you back to the ER and, and get you the support you needed. And if mm -hmm. you needed to be transferred to another hospital, we would take you there. Um, so it was a really kind of a neat way to um, address the needs of people in the hospital that were not necessarily patients, but that could become patients. And it turns out, um, you know, I work at a children's hospital. It's entirely staffed by adults. So, <laughs> and a lot of, uh, almost all of their parents are adults too. So there's right. a lot of adults going um, in our hospital. So it was, a, it was kind of a neat way of making sure that that population was being um, supported in case they needed medical response in the best way that was possible for them. And then um, the ED Resuscitation Committee is a, um, a committee I created um, that was really trying to be an ED-focused um, subgroup of the Hospital Resuscitation Committee. And it was an idea I had um, from being other institutions. Um, but ultimately, it came about for me to, to place because from being uh, a parent that had a child um, that was medically complex. So um, we had a child that 
had multiple congenital abnormalities, and he um, ultimately died at six months of age due to the, the complications of Bill's illness. Um, and that's really shaped how I practice medicine uh, in general. But when I came back to work after that, I, I knew I wanted to honor his life in some way. Um, and creating that committee was a way to make sure that we as a department could improve the care of our sickest patients, um, and namely patients like him. Thank you for, for sharing that and just giving us a window into those, those leadership roles. I want to look a little bit into the pandemic and pandemic times. It was a very challenging time for us all, but especially for healthcare professionals. As an emergency medicine doctor, what was it like to work through the pandemic? Yeah, I think um, the the hardest part about the pandemic for everyone it was it was that it, it was so unpredictable. No one knew what really to expect. There was so much fear involved, um, and every day it seemed like something was changing, and you didn't really feel like you had firm ground to to walk on. Um, so, you know, for me personally, you know, that meant that we didn't know what the risk we were taking and possibly being exposed to patients with COVID. I was pregnant at the time. I didn't know what the risk was for my child. Um, you know, coming back after that pregnancy and delivery, I, I was very fearful of bringing that to my child at home too. Um, and really how patients um, came to ER really changed too. So there was a period of time where, you know, we were all in lockdown and no one was going anywhere, including the emergency department, which was actually, you know, that's what people were encouraged to do. So, you know, I commend them for that. But, you know, when things started opening up again, um, all of the locations that were giving services to patients, surgeries, um, clinic appointments, procedures, imaging, all those things that had been planned had now been pushed back and there were now new patients that needed those things too. So they're extremely backed up. So patients could not get into clinics and um, get the care that they needed. Um, and that meant that um, Sometimes their only access to care was through the emergency department. Um, so not only were we getting uh, really high volumes of patients, which we're experiencing a crazy high number of patients right now, um, but we were also getting sicker patients, patients coming in because their condition had worsened to the point um, that they couldn't wait for those appointments and things like that, um, which is really, this is where it kind of comes back to like that kind of the pulse on the community really felt yeah. like you could feel the the breakdown of the system that wasn't able to really serve people the way they needed to be served. Um, and the ER became the place for it. And so um, it's kind of been a, a flux of, you know, of fear and um, anxiety of not knowing what to expect. And then, you know, now dealing with um, the rebound of the situation and not being able to to give the, the care that you would ideally want to give um, with patients waiting longer than they're wanting to wait and patients mm -hmm. being sicker than you would want them to be. <laughs> right, right. I've recently been inspired with a book, uh, When Breath Becomes Air. This autobiography tells a story of Paul Kalantiti, 
who is a 36-year-old healthcare professional who was almost finished with a decade's worth of training to become a neurosurgeon. During this time, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. At one instance, he was a renowned doctor, and at the other, he was one who was struggling to live himself. The book focuses on the key relationship between a doctor and their patient, and how Dr. Paul gained new insight after becoming a patient. Would you share with us how you have personally experienced this unique moment when you became a patient after having served as a doctor? Yeah, so, you know, I, um, I had a unique position with um, our first child and actually a subsequent pregnancies that I uh, had needed to be on bed, hospitalized bed rest and um, spent actually a couple of months cumulatively in the hospital for those bed rest situations. Mm-hmm. And so I was a patient for a really long time and um, having experienced that as having been a member of the healthcare field, you can see how um, it's hard to navigate um, through without understanding how the system works. Um, You could also see how it is difficult to advocate. Um, With my son as being a patient, uh, it was especially hard as a parent knowing how to navigate and advocate for your child well. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember with um, my husband being in the hospital with our first child with me and you know, I would be asking questions and, and making requests and uh, my husband saying, you know, I didn't even know some of those things were options. I didn't know that that was something that we could even ask to do or, you know, want to do for our child. Um, and I just think it, for me, it just made such a big impact of um, that sometimes in the medical system we can think there there are clear paths and clear boxes that things fit in. Um, but really some of what we do is really trying to give people the best information that they can get to be able to make the best decision for either their own health care or the health care of their, their families. Um, so I think it uh, has showed me one of the gifts that I can even give to my own family members is may not always be um, the person who is the expert about their condition, but it is the the person that understands the system and helps them navigate through it. I want to look, uh, taking a, a broader perspective, at the world of emergency medicine. As an emergency medicine doctor, how do you stay up to date on new treatment plans and, and new procedures um, with an ever-changing medical world that's very fast-paced and changing constantly? How do you try to stay up to date on that? Yeah, I think you know one of the things that I have um, really enjoyed uh, and think really is one of those things that um, pushes you to be better is educational systems, you know. I really enjoy um, working with medical students, residents, fellows, because not only do I need to, when I have a teaching moment or I give a lecture, I have to do the research and look into it, um, but there's great questions that are asked of me when I, when, when I have those moments. So that then brings me to the point of then 
doing more research and education for myself. And it's, so it's kind of a, um, you know, a sharpening each other kind of situation, which I think is really helpful. And, you know, I, I often um, sometimes think that, um, you know, the educational program that we have, like our um, patient safety quality improvement conference can be a, a great way of um, taking patient applications and really looking into the systems with the knowledge that we have and improving on them based on that. And that's really been um, a way to improve as a physician personally, because I've learned a lot from my own and other people's mistakes. And I highly encourage that if you can learn from others instead of your own, but you will make your own mistakes. That is part of being humans, Mm -hmm. helping humans, um, is that there are mistakes to be made. Uh, And, you know, I think finally, I just, I, um, that being around colleagues that are always open for discussion and helping each other, it it is always the collaboration part of being curious and wanting to understand the different strengths other people have and how they can teach you um, that really helps bring me to being a better position every time I work with others. And you need that curiosity to keep driving you and and it can be dangerous if you're if you're a doctor and set in your ways and not willing to change and keep that open perspective. But that's really powerful what you're talking about with those conferences and learning from your uh, mistakes as well as others and, and just constantly trying to improve and, and develop. What do you see in the world um, of emergency medicine and the future of this field that excites you? Yeah, so, you know, I think... Um one of the the fields of medicine has been hit the hardest because of such the variability has been emergency medicine and um you know i i there are things i am concerned about on how the field is is moving and i i hope that um there are excited passionate new learners that come into the field and are ready to make some of those changes uh, i think it is still uh one of, even though, it, you know, the biggest complaint people have in the emergency department is waiting. Uh, it is the most efficient system that you can get, <laughs> really, uh, in getting a multitude of problems um, addressed in probably the most quickly done po- possible way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think it, it, it does work well in... Um, in that way, just, you know, how do people access the care they need in um, the best way possible? Um, How do we create systems in that that allow um, for different channels of care? And um, I think there's a lot of possibilities with that. You know, I'm, I'm also interested in how that intersects with that outpatient role, you know, um, I have interest in, in pediatrics in general. So, you know, how does that work with uh, a clinic setting that then, you know, helps support in an emergency setting or take some of the load off the emergency setting or urgent care mm-hmm. setting, or even the urgent care? How do, how does that role then interplay between the clinic and the emergency department um, in a way that they're not siloed but really integrated? Um, I, I hope that those different realms of medical care can really start being collaborated across the board mm-hmm. better so that way we can really get patients what they need in the most efficient way possible. And, 
you know, keep kids as healthy and happy and safe as they can be. For sure. During your time um, in the ER and working as a doctor, have you faced any um, ethical dilemmas while in your field? Times when you may disagree with uh, what the team thinks is the best option or times maybe where you've had to um, advocate strongly for a patient or, or anything like that that you if you are willing to share. Yeah, yeah. Um, every day. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> every day that I go into the emergency department, there are ethical dilemmas. I think, you know, um, one of the, the hard parts about being a, uh, a provider that gives care to someone that has a caregiver, such as a patient uh, and their, their parent, is you have to be able to navigate both of those worlds well and really support both of those worlds well. Um, so, you know, um, when we have patients, I, I want to be able to make sure that that child is getting the best care that they, they can get, but I also know that the, their parent has needs as well that need to be met. Um, so it's, I think that that can be where a lot of ethical dilemmas can um, come up as far as, you know, what is the best care for the patient and what is the parent's understanding or where are they at in their ability to get to that point. Um, I think it takes a, sometimes uh, a really concentrated, intense effort to make um, connections to be able to have some of those conversations in a way to get people on the same page and understand where they're coming from. Uh, I think a lot, oftentimes there are those conflicts between either what a patient wants or what the medical system thinks a patient needs and what the parent thinks is very different. Um, so navigating those is always, you know, difficult to have, um, especially when it comes to end of life. You know, I, I don't like to have to, you know, have that in the emergency department setting. I don't think it's the best overall situation to have uh, a child die in the emergency department, but a lot of times there's some complications that come along with it and making sure that that not only does a patient got what they needed, but they also have justice um, and that parent also has um, time with their child is hard. Um, one of the most challenging parts of emergency medicine is um, non-accidental trauma or inflicted injury to children. So um, that's where it gets really complicated, especially with the death of a child, to make sure that that child's life was, you know, honored in a sense, and that if there is that aspect, that it is investigated. So it becomes a very delicate balance, uh, is what you're trying to say. For and, sure, yeah. um, you know, I think that um, non-accidental trauma is one of the most um ethical issue difficulties that we have ex we experience in the emergency department as well as end of life um, we also um, I think there's a, a lot of struggles um, that I mean pediatric patients but a lot of patients are having about mental illness and um, uh, that is a system unfortunately that was not prepared for the the COVID pandemic effects on it. So there's a lot more need than the system can give it. And so um, oftentimes pediatric patients are in emergency departments trying to get 
psychiatric care that they're not able to get until they're able to get into somewhere where they don't have room for those patients. So those those lead to really difficult situations for those patients too. Um, so trying to make sure that we are supporting this patient for a really difficult situation in a time where they're in crisis and maybe not at their best is um, hard to do. Um, so that's just a couple of things. I could probably talk for days about all that. <laughs> no, that's, that's incredibly helpful. And um, this is actually a question that one of our followers of the podcast had, but you are constantly, you know, you're showing empathy, you're showing compassion to the patients you daily encounter day in and day out. How do you deal with compassion fatigue and just that ability to keep, keep yourself your go- keep yourself going? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, I think for, obviously I think it's different for different people. Um, I think the, the core, your core belief systems are huge mm-hmm. when it comes to, um, doing difficult work. Uh, our faith is a cornerstone of our, my understanding, uh, and global worldview. Um, so without my faith, I don't know if I could really take on some of the, the struggles of the world without knowing that I felt like that God was in control beyond me, um, that I am a really small role in the grand scheme of things, and I am just supporting what, what God's plan is. Um, you know, I think in, in general, when it comes to um, compassion fatigue, I think a lot of it comes from just true emotional and physical exhaustion. So, you know, being able to have time to not only decompress, but um, refocus on what is important in your life uh, is so essential to that. Uh, And, you know, I think the other part that I don't think we do as well in in medicine is really um, seeking fellowship in um, the the true struggles of that and, and seeking those conversations that then support each other so that we can continue to do the best work that we can do. Um, because whether we like it or not, we this is a system that we are going to be a part of too. Um, mm-hmm. We will be patients. I've been a patient and I know I will be a patient again, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, I think that uh, we have to do our best in supporting each other as a system and supporting ourselves in, in the rest that we need as well as, you know, focusing on why it is that we do the work that we do. And um, I know that as an undergrad pre-med, um, it can sometimes be easy for me to lose perspective along the journey. So I found it so essential to keep my passion alive um, through shadowing experiences or research opportunities how do you keep your love for medicine alive and kind of avoid burnout? How do you keep that, that passion, that love for, for what you're doing alive? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, I, I think it's so important to, to really seek out that real genuine connection. Um, you know, emergency medicine is very fast-paced, and I don't always get a long time to get a connection with families. Um, but when I do, um, those moments are, I mentioned the word holy, they're, they're sacred space that you hold 
with um, your patient and their family that very few people in the world are um, bear witness to. And so, you know, having those moments and, and holding them in higher regard and connecting in those moments, uh, I think that is some of the most impactful uh, moments in my life. Uh, I think it would be easy to, you know, gloss over those moments. I think it would be easy to, to keep on um, going to the next patient. I think it would be easy to leave the shift and try to forget all about it. Um, but for me, I think that the thing that brings me joy is to really, you know, dig into those hard moments and, and sit with those family and families and to be present and to genuinely care and, and hope that, you know, if I can do that, they can feel that and they can feel supported and that even though what they're doing is difficult, they, they might know that there is something that's bigger than what's going on in their life. Um, so, you know, I, it's a long way of saying, um, that, that, um, for me, the joy is really the human connection and the, the desire to serve in that way. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we need that human side. We can't take the human side out of medicine because then it's not personalized anymore. So that's that's really beautiful. Uh, when you're not on shift and when you're outside um, of the aspect of the hospital and hospital life, what brings you joy outside of the practice of medicine? Yeah, I mean, you know, family is the best. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have two young toddlers, uh, a two and a three-year-old. Um, so they are uh, one of my biggest joys. Uh, they could definitely be my biggest frustrations too, but <laughs> it is uh, great to experience life through the eyes of a, of a child. You, it's just it's one of those things that you know you you think you have some ideas from having been a child and <laughs> experienced it or seen it on movies, but it is. Um, truly one of the most amazing experiences of life is to to have a child and and to experience life through them it gives you a whole new joy and you know being able to to share those family moments with my husband um and you know so thankful for the the family we have outside of our nuclear unit and our friends um you know we do fun stuff and we travel and we camp and all of those things but really it's 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 the people in and out of work that do it that um, make all the difference for me and what about uh, non-negotiables in your life anything that needs to be a part of who you are on a regular basis that's really important to you I mean, I guess I have to just say my faith because that is yeah. that is literally the only thing uh, of my life that I I have that I um, think that is I can't even say that I own everything else is uh, could change and pass at any second, mm -hmm. including my own actual life. So <laughs> non negotiable. Definitely need to have time for my faith. And then, what about uh, encouragement you would give? to an aspiring healthcare professional, someone who is just beginning their journey into medicine and is just stepping into that world uh, for the first time. Do you have any encouragement that you would give to them? 
Um, what I would really encourage um, those that are thinking about medicine, um, or really truly any field, um, is to, to really start thinking about um, how they were made and gifted and to, to understand themselves well. Uh, and then from that, really understand what they believe um, and um, what are the, the, the belief systems and thoughts they have when things are tough. Um, in, in medicine, there's going to be many times where you are beyond the point of exhaustion. You're beyond the point of emotional or um, feeling like out of control. Uh, and it's that those moments you need to be able to cling to to what why you even did it in the first place. And so you know a lot of um, the journey of life is figuring out who you are and what you believe in, and really then using that to to figure out how, why are you going to do what you're going to do and and cling to it in those moments where you question it because you will constantly question it. Um, and then going back to those moments and and saying, yeah, you know, it, this this was in my personal statement. I did I did actually want to help people because <laughs> we all put that in our personal statement. But um, you know, if it really is that, you know, to to push yourself in those moments and to remember that, um, I think is the big thing because if you don't have a great reason for for doing it. Maybe you should think about something else because it's not the easiest thing you could do. <laughs> for sure. How about practical uh, practical steps that an aspiring emergency medicine doctor could take in their undergrad years? Anything that would be helpful or valuable for them to kind of start getting exposed to or, or things that you can think of? Yeah, you know, I think um, to me, I think that the breadth of um, exposure and knowledge is important. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times in, in you know, training you have there's kind of the path that people tell you you should take you know you need to take this class you need to go you know shadow with this person you need to do this research you should get your name published on this and you know et cetera, et cetera. but you know there's a lot of things that go into the work that are outside of those things being able to be well-rounded so that you can be relatable to your patients mm -hmm. and be a, a you know, human being that they can connect with, you know. Uh, the other thing is just, just being able to have skills that are varied. You know, that draws you into different things in medicine, being able to write well, speak well, um, even procedural skills that are not always the highest, uh, you know, complexity um, can be something that, you know, we, sh we should all be able to help with and do, you know. Mm. Um, I think that that, you know, one of the things I always tell, um, you know, trainees in the ER is that every job has things in it that you didn't think you were going to have to do, but you're going to have to do them <laughs> because someone has to do it and it's the right thing to do and it needs to be done. And that's okay. And it's, it's good to do those things. I think that's, that comes with the, the service of work that we do. Um, so, you know, just being open to all of that and, um, you know, having having that full exposure to life. 
And then just in closing, any final advice uh, for those beginning their journey? Any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, you know, um, the the medical field is uh, such an uh, important uh, role um, because we we all will have touch points in our life to the medical system. And um, we will have family members that will have to help through it. Uh, and and we need to be able to, to support it in a way that um, is intentional and meaningful and compassionate. Uh, so really, uh, I think that for people that are interested in it, knowing that, you know, this is... It's a flawed system. It may not be perfect, but you can try to be the best you can be in that moment. You can try to do the most you can do in it, and that can make the difference um, for an individual patient or family. Um, I think the other part in um, is that you know it it seems like a a, a path you a train you get on and you can't get off, <laughs> and that's and just know I mean in life like it's. It, there's um, a lot of things that you think that you, if you do, you can't change it and you can, um, there's flexibility and, um, you know, as long as you have that passion and joy in what you're doing, you're, you're going to excel and you're going to help people the, the way you want it to. So I think it's, I think it's great um, that you're doing this podcast and I'm, I'm excited <laughs> you. for yeah. your listeners and all, all the interest and passion they have for, uh, healthcare or whatever their lives may bring them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast, for delving into the fast paced nature of the ER, for, for looking at how you prioritize that, the collaboration of your team, um, the value you bring as a doctor turned patient, um, as well as just kind of advances within emergency medicine and pressing issues. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) Thank you for tuning into this episode of Voices from Healthcare. This podcast seeks to give practical advice to aspiring healthcare professionals and encourage those within the healthcare field. If you appreciate the message and mission of this podcast, Leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to, and make sure to follow the podcast so that you do not miss out on future episodes. It really does help spread the word within the podcasting world. Tune in on January 17th as we explore the unique world of chiropractic care. We will touch on the idea of regenerative medicine and preventative care, as well as the focus of the importance of spinal adjustments. We will gain insight on the history of chiropractic care from the first adjustment in 1895 and will touch on where he sees the role of the chiropractor expand over the next several years. Feel free to send me professions you want me to interview, questions you have, or neat stories you want to share with me. You can email me at voicesfromhc at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast Instagram page at voicesfromhc. Here I'll post important updates about season launches, episode information, and more. Although this podcast seeks to be informative, information discussed cannot be taken in place of medical advice.